2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta This is City Lights I'm Lois Reitz Thank you for listening When film director Rob Garver was a student And began reading Movie reviews by Pauline Kael He said it was like listening To a pop song for the First time and immediately Wanting to hear more What she said Rob Garver's full-length documentary about the legendary film critic is streaming now, and we'll hear from him later this hour. First, locally curated film at your fingertips. The mission of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival is to entertain and engage diverse audiences with film through a Jewish lens while simultaneously challenging conventional perspectives on culture and history, life in Israel, and the work of Jewish artists, particularly where these stories intersect with other communities. Kenny Blank is the executive director of the AJFF, he is with us now via Zoom. Kenny, welcome back to City Lights.
3: Lois, it is truly a delight to be reunited with you over Zoom. I think we are all measuring life nowadays, B.C., before COVID and after COVID. And uh, this is the first time you and I have had a chance to speak since our world has been turned upside down. So. These little moments of connection are so meaningful in this new reality we're in. It's a a pleasure to be with you and your listeners. Always a joy to have you.
2: Friend of the show. And since you mentioned COVID, it wasn't long before the pandemic hit that you and I spoke in person. Fortunately, the festival occurred in mid-February. That's when you and I last spoke And if it were Sesame Street, we could say the February Festival was brought to you by the number 20 because 2020 marked the 20th anniversary of the AJFF. In those two decades, you have screened nearly 1,400 films. Kenny, what can you tell us about the turnout and some of the highlights of the
3: in-person festival
2: last February.
3: Well, Lois, as you said, we were incredibly fortunate to be able to present our 20th anniversary edition of the annual festival, really, truly just prior to the virus taking a hold on mainland United States. Our closing night was late February and very shortly thereafter, as we all know, things began to shut down. So we count our blessings all the time that after a whole year of planning a big 20th anniversary celebration, uh, we were able to present that to the community. And it was really the last chance for many of us, the film festival community, our Atlanta Jewish community, uh, arts lovers. It was one of those last opportunities for us all to come together be in a theater experiencing art together on the big screen, uh, having those shared connections before our life suddenly changed. So it was a a tremendous capstone to um, that milestone anniversary. And our 20th anniversary continues um, for the rest of this season. We're just doing it now virtually instead of in person. And of course, starting to get our heads around what next year's festival will look like given the ongoing pandemic.
2: So when did you decide to launch an online film catalogue?
3: Well, Lois, like so many arts organisations, as soon as the pandemic hit, we all had this moment where we had to ask ourselves, are we going to hibernate or are we going to innovate? And you hear that expression probably a lot as you talk to arts leaders here in the community. And for us, there was no choice. We knew, especially during these times, our audience needed the inspiration that film brings. They needed that food for the soul. So somehow, even though we weren't going to be able to proceed with our traditional programming, we needed to still enrich our audience, engage with them in whatever way that we could. So with kudos to our professional team, to our board leadership, and to our donors, and everyone who has supported us in the community. We very quickly pivoted uh, to virtual programming as uh, most arts organizations have uh, been forced to do. So we set about launching very quickly without a lot of thought about sort of long-term what the implications of all this would be and how long we'd be in this coronavirus footing. We wanted to get these new virtual programs off the ground quickly. So really in very short order, in a matter of weeks and a few months, we launched three new virtual programming initiatives to help continue the conversation around film, to bring uh, free uh, movies from our catalog of 20 years to our audience. And our third virtual program um, is really a chance, uh, it's an archive of, as you said, over a thousand titles of 20 years of festival programming that the audience can now access, search by a whole host of criteria, and then where they can go find these films from the festival vault Uh, online through third-party streaming platforms. Now,
2: that is AJFF Recommends?
3: Correct. Yeah, there's three virtual programming initiatives that have sort of filled this void since coronavirus. One is In Conversation, which is a podcast and webinar series where we're really continuing the conversation around Jewish cinema. You know, at the film festival, we always say it's more than just movies. It's about the conversation around movies. But the reality is... Uh, There's so many great films to see at the festival. Sometimes the conversation part of that gets short shrift. So in this new reality, there's plenty of time for all of us to talk about movies. So just because we can't convene together in the theater doesn't mean we can't stop. It doesn't mean we don't have, it doesn't mean we have to stop the conversation around movies. So we're talking all things Jewish cinema. On the webinar, we're really focused on film artists and new releases. So we've had amazing talent like Jesse Eisenberg the creators and one of the actors from the Netflix series on Orthodox coming on talking via Zoom with our audience and with the moderator about uh, these amazing Jewish film projects and then on the podcast we're able to have sort of a broader conversation around uh, all things Jewish cinema including dealing with a lot of issues of the day through the lens of Jewish film so for example our latest podcast is going to focus on the election and looking at profiles and leadership uh, as we get into election season here um, as portrayed uh, through cinema uh, or during the Black Lives Matter, uh, sort of the height of that movement and that crisis, uh, talking about the the intersection of Jewish life with African-American life and how that story has been told through through the film arts.
2: Mm. With the AJFF Recommends, How are the films categorized?
3: So, AJFF recommends, this is an online platform, again, a searchable archive of the thousand plus titles uh, in our 20 years of festival programming. And the beauty of it is, you know, every year people come up to me after the festival, they say, yeah, there were so many films, hundreds of screenings, I couldn't see everything I wanted to see. Where do I go to find these films I may have missed at this year's festival? a film that somebody told me about at last year's festival and going back. So finally, we have a place to point our audience and say, here, here's the entire library of 20 years. Go search it, go discover these films and experience them anew, share them with friends and family. So you can search by any number of criteria, by the festival year that the film was presented by the, by the, of course, the title of the film, uh, the country, the genre by the subject of the film. So if you're really interested in women's stories or films that deal with social justice issues or films about the Holocaust, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we have all of these subject tags and you can go into this search bar and just begin typing away and the, the system will actually spit up all these recommendations back to you. So there may be a very specific film you're looking for, but even then the system is smart enough, intuitive enough to also suggest similar films uh, that might, uh, that fit your criteria and that might be of interest to you.
2: Kenny, this sounds like it must have been an enormous task putting this together. Who compiled all of this?
3: It was really something overdue. We, We know we've been collecting all of these great films and titles and curating. I mean, we're really known as curators of great Jewish cinema. Um, We're one of the prominent uh, Jewish film festivals and preeminent film festivals anywhere in the world. And we needed to get this content out out, out to our audience so that everyone could experience it, no matter what year they joined the festival and became part of our amazing fan base. So uh, Brad Pilcher, our associate director, who's actually an amazing talent in his own right as a web developer, as a um, designer, Um, he really took the initiative to help think through the design of this and then working with our amazing web team built this out. And we've partnered with a a company called Just Watch, uh, which is a web-based system that uh, actually provides uh, this information as to where you can find uh, all films on, on various streaming platforms. So it takes the guesswork out of Uh, Let's see, am I a Netflix subscriber? Do I have Amazon Prime? Um, Am I on uh, Apple TV? This system will tell you all the viewing options so you can find where you can go discover these films uh, and bring them, enjoy them from the comfort of home.
2: Hmm. Now, have you noticed since launching AJFF Recommends what types of films get the most
3: streams or purchases? Lois, now that you've asked me that question, I'm going to go find out. It's a great <laughs> question. This The platform is so new that we have not had an opportunity to go back into the back end and, and run some reports and see what is getting the most traction with our audience. There was already a transition to digital, to streaming, well before the pandemic. We knew this is where the market, the business w- was headed. But I think as a film festival, we were re- reluctant to embrace that because we're all about bringing community together for the traditional movie watching experience in the theater. And, and certainly we look forward to returning to that. But look, part of our audience, their younger audiences, other audiences, this is how they consume movies nowadays. They're doing it on their iPads, on their home theater systems, on their TV, on their on their smartphones. So we wanna be there for all audiences. And really, we just leaned into this. Uh, my good friend and um, amazing arts leader who I look up to so much, Susan Booth at the Alliance Theater, Lois White. Oh, yes. She has a, a great line that I've adopted. I think all of us are adopting in, in this time. If you can't fix it, feature it. So that's what we're doing in the virtual world. We are leaning into virtual in a big way with our virtual programming, um, Uh, uh, year-round. And certainly as we look to planning next year's festival, virtual is going to be a big part of that. Susan,
2: ever so wise and brilliant and funny. What can you tell us about the interactive film contest?
3: So this is a continuation of our 20th anniversary celebration. Again, as we tried to innovate in this moment and say, well, what can we offer our audience to help fill their time and give them a diversion from all things in the world right now that we, we don't, we're all tired of the news. Movies, how can we connect our audience with our, our library uh, in new ways? So the playback of film contest gives our audience the chance to vote for their favorite films, their favorite narrative feature, their favorite documentary feature, and their favorite short film from the 20 years of festival programs. Again, over a thousand films featured uh, uh, over these past two decades. And it's kind of designed as a very fun, interactive final four bracket. So (laughs) start with one block of films, the audience watches these movies, they cast their vote, the field narrows, we have the next round of voting, and ultimately we wind up with the winner uh, in each of those genres. So we've already announced our winner for the best uh, short in our playback contest, for the best documentary, and we're right now in the thick of our narrative contest.
2: Oh, I love the Final Four reference. I must tell you, though ours is an audio medium, at this moment, my husband and I are both wearing our Indiana Hoosiers 1976 undefeated champion sweatshirts.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we launched Playback um, when the future of sports was also in question. So I think this filled really uh, a need for both, um, of course, a love for film, but also maybe a little of that uh, friendly competition uh, that comes with uh, sports. So maybe we, in some uh, unintended way, merged both needs there with uh, Playback Contest. I love it.
2: Now... The Film Festival offers many stories told and showcased from people of different backgrounds, not just Jewish storytellers or actors. Why do you want to include films that aren't exclusively told from those of Jewish heritage?
3: Lois, it's a great question and it really goes to the heart of the mission of this festival. Since the beginning, we were founded by the Atlanta chapter of American Jewish Committee, which is an international advocacy organization that really speaks to a broad human relations uh, mission of celebrating uh, and protecting uh, diversity, combating prejudice, uh, not just experienced by the Jewish community as anti-Semitism, but really all ethnic, religious, cultural groups. And the festival, even though we have become an independent nonprofit arts organization, we continue our partnership with American Jewish Committee and we've continued forward this mission. And look, I think it enhances all the work of everything that we do. This film festival is beloved by our Atlanta Jewish community because it's a great way to connect with your heritage, with your history, with your... Uh, religious or ethnic identity. But the topics that we're dealing with really explore the intersection of Jewish life with the larger world and other communities. So just having these conversations and experiencing these films within the Jewish community alone, it's very limiting. Um, These conversations are so greatly enhanced when we look at them through a bigger lens and bring others into that discussion and that experience of watching these films because they are dealing with global issues, um, issues that really affect all of us. We are one large global community at the end of the day and our, our, our common decency, our respect for one another, um, being able to walk in someone else's shoes to understand people from all walks of life, whatever their political persuasion, their religious, ethnic, cultural identity, We can only build those bridges of understanding if we're having this shared experience around film with as diverse an audience as we can possibly bring under our festival umbrella.
2: Mm. Have you begun to discuss what next year's festival will look like?
3: Uh, We have. We're very much in the thick of that planning. Like so many institutions, organizations, not just uh, arts, nonprofits, but all of us in our lives personally professionally we've all had to think about how we're going to adjust to this new reality for the long term i think all of us uh, probably engaged in some wishful thinking at the outset that this will be a a blip on the radar and we could return back to business as usual very quickly but particularly here in the art sector we're realizing we have to get on a different footing for the long term and so our festival will return in february of 2021 there will be a 21st edition of the atlanta jewish film festival what we can say for sure is we'll be back in february we'll be bringing you the very best in international cinema but what that experience looks like how we'll be delivering that content to our audience is certainly going to have to change for the safety of everyone look i know theaters are re- uh, some movie theaters are reopening some people are testing the waters and going back out but there's another way and there's a way that we can do this and put the safety of our audience um, first and foremost. So our 21st edition will be largely virtual and we're gonna embrace that. We're gonna figure out how can we deliver virtual in the best possible way. We know it can't entirely replicate the experience of the traditional in theater experience, but we're gonna make virtual the best it can. And it's that community connection. It's the conversation around the films we need to find a way to replicate that in the virtual space because that's what makes this more than just watching a movie by yourself. It's the conversation, it's the socialization that happens around these movies, the stimulating conversation, because these are movies you're gonna wanna talk about. So actually virtual, again, creates opportunities here. We can bring in film when geography is sort of removed from the equation, when the need to travel is eliminated, We can now bring in actors, directors, people from the film arts all around the world uh, and bring them to our audience virtually. So I think we're gonna really grow, enhance the guest programming component of next year's festival. That will be a significant uh, change. And find again, other ways to create a larger experience beyond uh, the movie watching alone.
2: Do you think that drive-ins might be a component?
3: It's something we're exploring. I think we, we need to be innovative. We need to be open-minded. We need to see how the landscape is evolving and see what audience uh, tastes and appetite for getting out of the house and doing different kinds of things, what it lends itself to. So drive-in is a hot thing right now. It's the it's sort of a, uh, a bit of a nostalgia play. I, uh, we've sort of come full circle here that we're, we're back to watching movies at the drive-in. So it's something certainly, Lois, that we will evaluate Whether it's part of next year's annual festival or maybe a unique experience we do outside the festival, it's certainly up for consideration.
2: Kenny Blank is the executive director of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. You can access their online catalog at ajffrecommends.org. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Mark Kendall is a favorite Atlanta-based comedian and Dance Garage Ensemble actor. During the summer, he released several online videos addressing systemic racism in America and specifically in Georgia. I spoke with him shortly before the release of his third video, A LeBron Solution for Confederate Monuments. This week, Mark released a follow-up video to his original If Marta Came to Cobb County. Here's Mark Kendall describing that content.
0: In the sketch, we imagine a world in which several Black guys plan on how they're going to rob pianos from people's homes on foot,
2: (laughs) Pianos on foot. Right, yeah, robbing people's pianos, yeah. And all the while taking public transportation. Correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. The humor is exaggerated. It's clever. It's everything you expect satire to be. The topic is not so funny. The expansion of Marta to Cobb County and beyond has been brought up in many Georgia legislative sessions to narrow avail. Why did you want to release this video now, Mark? So I have been working
0: a lot with uh, Atlanta filmmaker, Bill Worley. And at the beginning of this year, we had made plans to release, you know, comedy videos on a regular basis. And the MARTA video was one that we had shot Uh, Earlier this year, I think it was perhaps March 1st. And then, you know, not even two weeks later, everything changed with the pandemic and uh, COVID-19. And so we had actually had the sketch shot and edited for a number of months, but just with the way things were, we just chose not to release it. But then after being in quarantine for, a while and then also seeing the conversations that were starting to emerge about uh, race, racial justice, um, the way we police black people, then it felt more appropriate to release the sketch. And, um, and so that's how it came to be.
2: Mm. Before we get to your second release, both of the videos are based on your one-man Dad's Garage Show, The Magic Negro, and Other Blackness. This show had legs, as the expression goes. You took it to the Alliance Theater and then performed The Magic Negro in other major U.S. cities. What is that show about?
0: The Magic Negro and
2: Other Blackness
0: is uh, my one-person sketch show that explores representation of black men in the media and uh, uses comedy and satire to uh, look at uh, several images that we see in the media a lot. And again, earlier this year when talking with uh, Bill Worley, who's been really great at helping me take these pieces that were once on stage into video, we wanted to try to have, find ways to to keep the same tone that was on stage, uh, while also taking advantage of the medium of video to explore new things. Uh, and so Bill is an excellent cinematographer as well as an editor. And he's been, also, he's been so great about bringing in amazing collaborators as well uh, to help us make these videos what they are.
2: Mm. Now there's a very different term in your second release. This video is serious, fiercely so. It is age-restricted, and there's a trigger warning for language. Would you take us through your writing Green Eggs and the N-Word? Yes, of
0: course. So this piece uh, was the first piece that I wrote for my one-person show like years ago. So it was the first one that That I did, and so I've you know been performing this piece for quite some time on stage. Uh, However, when it came time to adapt it to video, I wanted to make it a little bit more clear because I couldn't be in the room with people as I performed it for them. If that makes any sense. Uh, So again, going back to with the help of Bill Worley and Jenny Wentling, uh, who did art direction for us, and Haddon Kime, who did music and sound design for us, we were able to pull images of Uh, things that were happening in the news, or are happening in the news, uh, as well as uh, Jenny's excellent art direction to evoke the feeling of reading Rainbow, LeVar Burton's show from back in the 80s and the 90s, uh, as well as Haddon's um, composing and music to also evoke certain emotions that might otherwise be missed if, you know, I'm not able to to perform it uh, live for you in the room. But it's an exploration of the N-word and the attention that we give it, the way it's treated. But also, I think something that the piece is trying to say is beyond just words, what other things are happening systemically, you know, that are also oppressing people. And I think the piece is perhaps also reminding folks not to forget those other things that
2: also have a huge impact, even if that word is not necessarily being said all the time. Atlanta-based comedian and improv artist Mark Kendall. He released a new video on Tuesday called Vote to Expand Marta in Gwinnett. What's the worst that could happen? You can see that video on his Mark Kendall YouTube channel. This is City Lights on WABE, I'm Lois Wright, Says Thank you for listening. What she said, The Art of Pauline Kael, is a documentary about the life and work of the legendary New Yorker film critic. Earlier this year, I spoke with the director Rob Garver from NPR in New York. When he began reading Pauline Cahill's reviews as a student, Garver said it was like listening to a pop song
1: for the first time and immediately wanting to hear more. I was a young person when I first read her. I was in high school or college in the early 80s, and she was like a pop song because her writing was so vivid and so funny and insightful and witty, and sometimes her writing was better than the movie itself that she was (laughs) writing about. That always stayed with me. She was very different from other critics. I've told people that she was not a film critic. She was a writer, and her subject was movies. She put all of herself into it, and that's what made her so different. I had the idea to make this movie about five years ago, and it was that voice of Pauline's that was so individual that always stuck with me, and What I really wanted to try to do was to bring her voice alive in my movie.
2: Would you talk about the role of Sarah Jessica Parker?
1: Yes, Sarah Jessica performs Pauline's writing. So there are about 10 or 15 different short passages in the movie where Sarah Jessica is actually reading from Pauline's work, performing it, really. She does kind of a, a hybrid between herself and Pauline, and I think she does a great job, but When I uh, got to the point where we needed to record Pauline, I knew I didn't want to use a narrator, and I knew I didn't want to use titles on the screen. I think they're boring. And I really wanted to make Pauline come alive through an actress. Sarah Jessica being associated with New York, as Pauline was, although both of them are not from New York, I knew she could do that kind of a job. She's urban. Sex and the City was always introduced and left off with her voiceover from her column of her character in the show. And she ended up doing a great job. And she also had a personal connection with Pauline. She read her as a young person like I did. Actually, Pauline's last published review was of the Steve Martin movie called L.A. Story, which Sarah Jessica is in. And she praised her. She did. She played kind of a nymphet in that movie, and Pauline says she's the girl who keeps saying yes. <laughs> I think that was the last line of Pauline's review.
2: I, too, read Pauline Kale as a very young person and continued to, and can still recall so many things from her reviews. It's astonishing to think about the power. That she wielded.
1: Yeah, I agree. This was the pre digital age, pre internet age, and she wrote professionally from the early 50s until the early 90s. So her career really ended just before the digital technology came on. Jurassic Park was a couple of years away, and the internet was a couple of years away. And she wrote when really the only way you could see a movie was by going to a movie theater. A lot of her writing was in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s before the advent of VCRs. So that was part of her thrust as a writer is that she really wanted to get the experience that she was feeling in a theater and communicate that on the page. Yeah. And that's another aspect of her writing that made her so good, I think.
2: Pauline kale is remembered as this formidable critic whose name is synonymous with the New Yorker. Would you describe her career leading up to the New Yorker years?
1: Sure. It was very rocky. She really didn't hit her stride until her 30s. She was born in 1919. So she grew up in Petaluma in San Francisco. Her father was um, a chicken farmer, part of a Jewish community in chicken farms in Petaluma. That didn't work out. They moved to San Francisco. She grew up, went to Berkeley. She always knew she wanted to be a writer. She was always a voracious reader, always a voracious consumer of culture, of movies, of theater, of music, of art, and all of it really almost in equal levels. She just wanted to consume everything her whole life. But she didn't find her niche until the early 50s when she was in a coffee shop and talking about Limelight, the Mm -hmm. Chaplin movie. And the publisher of a San Francisco magazine called City Lights overheard her and said, well, would you like to write a review of Chaplin's Limelight? It turned out to be two reviews, one pro and one con, and Pauline was the con.
2: <laughs> and that's how it began. She said, I don't care if he's a genius. I don't like that man.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that was that's almost exactly what she wrote.
2: How did um, being a Californian... Inform her identity.
1: Well, that's a big part of her story because she was always in California except for a few years after college when she came to New York and tried to make her bones as a writer and it really didn't have any success. And she tried playwriting, she wrote a couple of spec teleplays, I think, for early television. But she went back to California and she wrote a couple of book reviews and then she started writing film reviews and was really writing for the magazines like Sight and Sound and Film Comment, magazines that were devoted only to film. And her bent really was that San Francisco was a smaller place then, I think. And she was always writing against New York and against the New York critics, which is kind of ironic because she ended up being a New York critic herself. But it was this us and them kind of dynamic with her, where Bosley Crowther, who was the New York Times critic, would write a fawning review of a movie that she didn't like very much, and she would go through his and other reviews point by point. And she was really kind of like a prize fighter; She was taking on people, and she really made her bones that way. And after about 10 years, she got an offer from Life Magazine, and she moved to New York with her daughter Gina, and she had still a tough time of it for another three years. She worked for Life and Vogue and McCall's and The New Republic, and she got fired from a couple of those and (laughs) quit another one because they were cutting her copy. And she wanted it her way, and that's what makes her such a compelling subject.
2: Oh, yes. You mentioned Pauline Kael's daughter, Gina James. She appears in the film and provides meaningful context. I read that initially she was reluctant to take part in the film. How did you persuade her to come on board, Rob?
1: Gina is uh, very much her own person. She worked for her mother in her early life from her late teens and 20s, and she was her mother's typist. Pauline didn't type or actually drive a car. So Gina, I think, had a difficult time in some ways growing up with a mother who was a critic, and I think she's always been sensitive to criticism of her mother. There are a lot of people who don't like Pauline, and a lot of people who think Pauline was full of herself and wrong about a lot of movies, if you can be wrong. I don't really even agree with that word, but... Gina was there with Pauline for her whole life, so I knew I had to have her in the film, and the first thing I did was I picked up the phone and called her and went up from New York to Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and introduced myself and more or less asked for her blessing to make the movie, and she didn't give it to me. But I just decided to start anyway, and I kept her abreast of what I was doing, and I showed her an early rough cut, and after a while, I think she could see that I wasn't going to do just a hit job on her mother. The reason I made the film is because I loved Pauline's writing, so it was never going to be that. But I do show the aspects of her mother that were controversial and that there were filmmakers who really had trouble with Pauline. But Gina eventually shared these great personal photos of her mother and her family and then sat down for a couple of interviews and also shared these home movies that she had from the Berkeley years in the late 50s of Pauline hosting parties at her house, and they're just an amazing part of the film. Gina herself had not seen them. I rented a projector, and we watched them together. They show Pauline kind of drinking and smoking with friends, and it just gives the audience, I think, such a great sense of what that life was like. And I'm glad that Gina was cooperative in the end, but she, she's tough. She actually didn't sign the releases until about three months ago. Really? Yeah.
2: Well, Pauline Kael's dislike for certain actors and directors seemed deeply personal at times and irrational. She may have been the only critic unimpressed with Meryl Streep. Her writing about Meryl Streep could veer far away from Streep's performance. Meryl Streep is not among the dissenting voices in your documentary, but you do address some of those whom Pauline Kael attacked. Would you talk about how you chose the creatives whom we see on film, both those who are indebted to her and those who were hurt by her?
1: I knew I didn't want to just have people who Pauline wrote positively about, because that would be boring. There are people who, like Ridley Scott, I found a a recording that he did with another interviewer specifically about Pauline, and it was just from a couple of years ago. And it was when Blade Runner was re-released, and he was still upset about the review Pauline wrote about the original Blade Runner in 1982. So you can see what kind of an effect she had on some people. Meryl Streep, Pauline did write positively about as well, but she did almost seem to kind of have a personal bent. I think she thought Meryl Streep's technique was too ever-present in a way, and that you could always watch the wheels turning. I think that was more or less Pauline's opinion. There's a scene in my movie with David Lean that I found archival footage, and... uh, He's talking about Pauline and the things that he said uh, about his movie, Ryan's Daughter, from the early 70s. And he himself says that he didn't make a movie for 14 years after that encounter with Pauline. So that's pretty dramatic. There are a lot of examples like that. But there are also great examples of people who wrote to Pauline kind of fan letters almost, Mm -hmm. like Carol Burnett and even Marlena Dietrich. I have kind of a scene in the movie, too, where we see all these letters, and I had them voiced by actors. So there's a letter from Steven Spielberg and Gregory Peck and a lot of others, and shows the kind of influence she had that I think doesn't exist today.
2: Quentin Tarantino was a fan.
1: Yes, yes, and he's uh, he was eager to talk about her. We interviewed him at his house in his uh, screening room, and he's very vocal about Pauline and in saying that she was more or less his film school and that he would go to the bookstore when he had no money when he was 15 and read her book and put it back on the shelf and come back another time when he could read it more because he didn't have enough money to buy it. David Russell is also in my film, and he read her as a young person, and I think they just felt that she had such a strong vision, and that's what they wanted to do in movies, is have their own vision, and in some way, maybe reading Pauline helped them find it.
2: Mm. You talked about her visceral response to film and loving sitting in a movie theater. It was especially powerful, the way you depicted the American New Wave, and particularly the impact of Bonnie and Clyde.
1: That was really the first film in the American New Wave, and that was also Pauline's big break. She wrote this huge, long piece on Bonnie and Clyde for the New Republican. They rejected it, and then she offered it to the New Yorker as a spec piece, and uh, they published the whole thing, and then hired her about a year later. She really saw things in that movie that other people didn't see, and the movie was initially panned by many critics, and Pauline's piece was published, and there started to be people reevaluating it. It was actually re-released. It did a lot for Warren Beatty's career, too, who was also the producer. And that comes back later in my film because she ended up working for Warren Beatty for a few months in Hollywood and giving up criticism to try to make movies.
2: In the film, the writer Lily Analix says of Pauline Kael, her reviews were as expressive as a short story or a sonnet. How did Cale turn reviews into an art form?
1: That's the magic of creation, isn't it? I mean, sometimes you just don't know how they do it with good artists. But with Pauline, she really put all of herself into it. She had such a foundation of literature in her life and books. And she would read great authors and poets and not just one book, but all of their books. She would read Proust and Dylan Thomas and... Henry James, and read through all their works. And by the time she got to writing about movies, I mean, movies were fun for her. Mm -hmm. Movies were something that was a release from literature in a way. She loved literature, but movies come to you. You have to come to a book. But she put all of that absorption in art and literature that she already had, and it poured out onto the page. She always knew she wanted to do something that was personal and that was immediate and describing her feelings and her initial response to a movie and not working from a theory or some preset ideas.
2: I was intrigued to learn from the documentary that she was dissatisfied with the academic tone of her early reviews. How did she change her approach? What became the art form was, in fact, writing that was quite conversational.
1: She always talked about wanting to try to make the writing more conversational and wanting her reviews to be more like the discussions that she had with friends after seeing a movie. They were way beyond that. There's an understanding of the way the world works, of the psychology of the characters, of how the movie connects to history, her piece on Citizen Kane raising Kane. <laughs> she talks about all the great newspaper movies of the 30s that it came out of and Herman Mankiewicz's relationship to William Hearst that was the fuel for the story and she made connections. She did it really better than anyone else and in her own way. It's not to say she didn't have influences. She's, she talked about being influenced by James A. G, who she read in the 40s growing up, who was a more personal film critic, but she took it to a whole nother level. And and also she came of age professionally in the 60s when everything was opening up. Mm -hmm. And I think that had something to do with it also.
2: Rob, I must congratulate you on the editing of this film. Thank you. It is so clever, and it adds a lot of excitement to viewing the documentary. Would you talk about how you use excerpts from movies to help tell the story of Pauline Kael?
1: Yes, I always knew from the time I started making the movie that I wanted to try to tell her story through pieces of other movies because I didn't want to make a dry film about a film critic. It's a portrait, and my only goal was really to make her come alive. And because she was so immersed in art and culture and movies, the best way for me, I thought, to do that would be to use pieces of other movies. So there are a lot of examples in my movie. For instance, when she turned down a an advertising copywriting job because she knew if she accepted it, she would be stuck there for maybe the rest of her career, and she wouldn't be able to really do what she wanted to do. I use a shot from the apartment where Jack Lemon is given a promotion and is walking into the office, and the guy is putting his name on the door. The quote from Pauline was, I knew that when they put my name on the door, I had to quit because uh, I would be there for the rest of my life, possibly. But there were a lot of examples like that and tried to use the clips in a justifiable way that were connected to the era of Pauline's life. People always ask, how did I get the rights to use them? Well, I used them through fair use and went through a good fair use law firm and had to have more or less everything approved. You can only use as much as you need to use for the point you're making. That's sort of the tenet of fair use law. But it really helped me make a richer movie, I think.
2: Very much so and maybe the time limitation was what helped make it so exciting to watch because it's some of its rapid fire
1: yeah <laughs> the story starts early on in the 30s when Pauline's a child and then moves through the 70s 80s and all the way up to to when she retired in the early 90s but when Pauline got older in the 70s and the um De Palma and Spielberg and Lucas and Coppola and Scorsese, and movies got pretty intense. So I knew my movie had to reflect the movies of her time.
2: You talk about her being a master of contradictions.
1: I think David O. Russell says that in in my movie as well. One of her most well-known essays is called Trash, Art, and the Movies. Mm -hmm. And it's all about appreciating a movie that you might overlook just because it's it's trashy. Maybe it's an exploitation film. She said there's always things that you can find in these movies that you can come to and cherish, like a specific performance or the subject of a movie, maybe. But she, on the one hand, could write positively about a movie that was more high art, I guess. But then she loved low art as well. Not all of it. She liked to take a stab, I think, at the pretentious movies, and she really appreciated the simple pleasures of a great comedy or crime film. I think after she retired in the 90s, and she was almost 80, she she said she, she really enjoyed Dumb and Dumber, <laughs> the Jim Carrey movie. It's a
2: very funny movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, but even within trash art and the movies that array of contradictions applies, albeit beautifully. When she says that movies are a tawdry, corrupt art for a tawdry, corrupt world, that they fit the way we feel, she goes on to write that movies are our cheap and easy expression, the sullen art of displaced persons. But then later in that essay, she talks about Bertolt Brecht. So we start out with the trash and, and in defense of trash. And is that just emblematic of her, how she could go from defending lowbrow eventually to citing Bertolt Brecht?
1: I forgot the passage about Brecht, but it was probably connected to some kind of simple pleasure. She was never a black or white person. And there are a lot of people who have said she loved one filmmaker or another, like Robert Altman. The truth is, she wrote positively about less than half of Altman's movies, I think. Mm. And she had a famous quote about his movies that he always makes a good one after a bad one. So when I see a bad one, I'm looking forward to his next (laughs) one. There are always things in her reviews, I think, that you can find that go against maybe what the public at large generally thinks about her. Hmm.
2: Brian De Palma was a favorite.
1: Yes. Yes. She loved the sensuality of De Palma. She loved the way he moved the camera and the way he cut his movies. And I think she was really seduced by De Palma and she wasn't big on violence, but the violence in his movies is so stylized that I think he won her over, and especially in movies like Dress to Kill and Carrie mm. that had humor as well.
2: In the end, her daughter says that she thought Pauline Kael turned her lack of self-awareness into a triumph. Do you consider Pauline Kael's writing that of A person who was not self-aware?
1: Well, no, I don't. I think the writer that comes through in her essays and reviews is very self-aware, but Gina, I think, was referring to Pauline, the person, and really talking about that she wasn't sensitive to the feelings of the people she wrote about. And Pauline basically thought she was right and thought she was doing a favor for filmmakers and artists. And a lot of filmmakers and artists agreed with that, but many of them didn't. But when Gina says that that her mother wasn't self-aware, she means in her ability maybe to empathize with the people she wrote about, with her victims. (laughs) Ah,
2: yes. With social media ever present and Rotten Tomatoes, what has happened to the role of film critics?
1: Well, it's been diffused, I guess, because everybody is a critic and everybody can be a critic just by going on a message board or Facebook or Twitter. And so I think people don't seek out specific critics as much as they did because in the pre-digital age there was no choice. You had to, you could talk about a book or a movie or a, or a band with your friends, but it wasn't public. Like it is now. I mean, you go on Facebook and talk about a, a new band with a friend, and everybody sees what you said and chimes in. And th- that changed everything. Mm. And uh, part of the reason I made it is because it is kind of a once in an era thing. And she was one of those people that was just like a magnet and had such a strong voice. And uh, I don't think it, it will be that way again.
2: Well, thank you very much for Thank you. with me.
1: Thank you very much, Lois. I appreciate it.
2: Rob Garver is the director of the documentary What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael. You can stream the film on Amazon Prime, iTunes, and Fandango. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, a leading global expert in the area of infectious diseases. He's also a music lover, and Dr. Del Rio will tell us about when we might safely return to gather for live performance. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR.